Well, we're going to continue to talk about anger, and we're going to continue to look in the book of Proverbs primarily to see what God's wisdom is for us on the matter of anger and how to deal with our anger. We're going to continue to look at some other Proverbs that address various principles that we can be applying to our own lives that help us in this area. And just as a reminder, in the New Testament, and we mentioned this last time, we look at the book of James, and James gives us this warning in chapter 1. He, say, he talks about the fact that you know, God is he's, he's given us grace, he's, he's, he's saved us, He's made us new creatures in Christ, and this point is that we are born again, we're new creations in Christ, and then, and then he goes and gives this warning, this instruction in chapter 1, he says, "'Know this, my beloved brothers.'" Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, anger anger is a common hindrance to righteous living. It's something that gets in the way of the righteous living that God desires you to practice. The reason He saved you. He saved you so that you might walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in, that you might glorify him by doing that. Anger will get in the way of that. It can keep us from doing what is right and just and good in God's eyes, and therefore we must handle it according to God's wisdom. So, so far we have seen a little review. So far we've seen that God's wisdom for us is that we must be self-controlled. We must be slow to anger. Because anger has the potential to be very destructive, to be harmful. If it's not properly handled and contained, meaning if we, if we bottle it up, or if we unleash it, if we blow up, then it will cause us to act foolishly. It will cause us to do harm. It will cause us to stir up strife. And it will cause us to create or cause more transgression, much transgression, much more sin. When our spirit is stirred up and we feel anger, God's wisdom tells us that we must rule our spirit and restrain that anger. But it doesn't stop there. We must rule it and restrain our anger. We must not give ourselves to, that, to our anger so that it rules over us. We don't want our anger to have us, to take control of us. We take control of it. We must neither let it cause us to blow up invent our spirit, nor must we let it sit and stew within us so that it festers and turns into bitterness and resentment and malice. Remember that? So the two ways to misunder your anger are to bottle it up and let it sit and stew or to let it, let it cause you to blow up. Not only must we rule our spirit and restrain our anger, right? We talk about being self-controlled. We're like, okay, man, I'm just not going to blow up. I'm going to restrain it. But God's wisdom goes further. We must rule our spirit and restrain our anger, and beyond that, we must calm our spirit and extinguish that anger. So it's not enough to just hold it back. What we must do is put it out. That is real self-control. So real self-control doesn't stop at, hey, I'm just not going to blow up, man. I'm boiling inside, but I'm going to keep it in. Real self-control is going to say, now with this anger, I'm going to put it out. I'm going to calm my spirit. So the first problem we're going to look at this morning is Proverbs 19.11. So you can go ahead and turn there. Proverbs chapter 19, 
Verse 11, if you're using a blue Bible that we provide for you, is on page 541. And here's what it says. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is His glory to overlook an offense. It literally says a man's good sense makes him slow to anger. And it is is His glory to overlook an offense. Good sense, we've come across this word before in Proverbs. It, it, It refers to practical insight. It's the ability to read a situation and to act appropriately so that you have success according to God's standards. So it's insight that, that results in success. And some, sometimes when this word appears, it's just translated success. You'll have success because you're actually reading a situation and approaching it with insight so that you'll have success, you'll successfully handle it. Exercising good sense will, will make you slow to anger because whenever there's a potential conflict at hand, good sense will drive you to seek to understand the situation. It'll drive you to understand the other person. It'll drive you to understand what the real problem is so that you may have success in solving it in a way that is helpful and pleasing to the Lord. Exercising good sense requires that, you, that your anger would take a back seat, so to speak. God's wisdom is that we, we act according to knowledge rather than that we simply react according to a feeling of anger. Because otherwise you'll fly by the seat of your pants, you know. Anger kicks in, you just react. You don't even think about anything. And a lot of damage is done. But we start using our head Start using godly wisdom, good sense. Let me think first, right? That's being slow to anger. And James says, hey, be slow to speak. You feel some anger, hang on a second. Understand what's going on. Try to understand the other person. Exercise good sense. If we take hold of God's wisdom and do not forsake it, here's what it will do. It will change us. It will make us slow to anger. Here's what it looks like. To to take hold of God's wisdom and not forsake it means to apply godly understanding and good sense. The things that we are reading in Proverbs, the things that we're reading in His Word that are addressing the subject, if we actually apply those things, the result will be that we are slow to anger. God's wisdom will foster humility in us. God's wisdom will teach us to be patient in trying situations. It will teach us to be patient with fellow sinners. And it will teach us to be patient when we are sinned against. I mean, at the end of the day, being slow to anger is really being patient. Being patient with a fellow sinner, which reminds you, I'm a sinner too. And when you're sinned against, to be patient. Now that last part's the hardest. When you're sinned against, when somebody does you wrong, being slow to anger then, being patient then, isn't that a challenge? When someone sins against you, and, and I'm not talking about they just irritate you, that's annoying, or inconvenience you, got to get somewhere, this is inconveniencing me, but they actually do evil towards you. They actually sin against you. And again, sometimes we say, they irritated me, they, they did me wrong because they irritated me, or they wasted my time. No, no, an actual wrongdoing, an actual offense. 
When that happens to you, when someone sins against you, and you know what I'm talking about, do you feel anger? Don't you just naturally kind of, don't you feel anger as a response? Are you not tempted to, to retaliate, to respond in kind? Fight fire with fire, right? That's what worldly wisdom would be. He did to me, so I do to him. Eye for an eye, right? But that's not godly wisdom. Let's consider the second statement Solomon makes in this proverb. What does he say? The second half, he says, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now again, an offense is not just some careless mistake, right? Sometimes people can mess up. It's not intentional. So chill out. But what happens when someone sins against us? They commit an offense against us. Well, we're not talking about a careless mistake. An offense is actually a willful wrongdoing. Someone willfully does you wrong. So that kind of elevates this this principle for us. It's his glory to overlook an offense. That is, when someone willfully does me wrong, it is my glory to overlook that. Now let's say that you've been sinned against. Your anger is kindled. Well, if your anger is kindled, because again, sometimes you can be sinned against, you don't even realize it, so maybe your anger is not kindled. But you realize, hey, you sinned against me. I'm angry now. The first step is to restrain your anger. You don't unleash it. You don't let it rule you. Rather, you rule your spirit. And the next step is to extinguish your anger so that it doesn't continue to burn inside of you. And the question is how? You say, well, that sounds good. Yeah, I should just stop being angry. Stop being angry. I mean, how how do we do that? What's a, a way we can achieve that? Can I just wish it away? That feeling of anger inside of me. Can I just wish it away? Will special breathing techniques neutralize it? Again, worldly wisdom. Oh, okay. That's all it took, right? Nah. I don't think that would take care of it. I would suggest that really the best answer is right here in in this proverb. The best answer is right here, 1911. When you've been sinned against, you can extinguish your anger by making a conscious choice to overlook that offense. Conscious, willful choice. There has been willful sin against you. You make a willful choice to overlook that offense. And I would say that is how you can put that anger out. Not only does it make your anger short-lived, Solomon says it's your glory. A willingness to forgive will make your anger short-lived, and a willingness to forgive is your glory. And what does that mean? Well, it means it's a beautiful and honorable quality. Beautiful and honorable quality. A willingness to forgive, and actually a Uh, extending forgiveness, extending mercy and grace to someone who's done you wrong is a beautiful and honoring quality. It's a willingness to extend mercy and grace which reflects the likeness of God. That's why he says it's your glory, because you're reflecting the likeness of God. You have been wronged, you have been sinned against, and in the face of that sin, you are merciful and gracious, and you overlook it. Remember, God described, we talked about this last time, God describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's a forgiving God. God is merciful and gracious, and he applies that by forgiving sin. The prophet Micah praised God for his grace and mercy towards people. Here's what he said. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. By the way, that that phrase right there is the exact same one in 1911, in Proverbs 1911. Passing over transgression. Except in Proverbs, it's translated to overlook an offense. You're passing over a transgression. The same exact phrase. That's why he says it's your glory. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So anger might be kindled in you, but it's your glory to put it out, to extinguish it, to delight more in love than in vengeance. Or retaliation. There are really uh, two reasons why we should be merciful and gracious to others. First of all, as we said, because it's good and right. Why should be you should be Why should you be merciful and gracious to someone who sins against you? Because it's actually a good and right thing to do. It reflects the holy character of God, as we said. And we can consider Christ's instruction in the Gospel of Luke. This this principle that he uh, reiterates. His instruction is, in Luke 6, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. What? If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Do you see the principle here? And then he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then His point of application, the the, the kind of big idea here is, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So when someone sins against you, does you wrong, it's your glory to overlook that offense. You're called to be merciful as God is merciful. And again, if you'd say, well, I'm only going to treat people nice who treat me nice. And if they sin against me, I sin against them. Well, you're, you're just acting the same way that unredeemed, unregenerate, depraved, sinful people act. And it's unrighteous. And there's a second reason why we should be merciful and gracious. The first is it reflects the likeness of God and therefore glorifies Him. second reason is this. We should be gracious and merciful to others. We should be willing to overlook offenses because God has shown us infinite grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. So not only does it reflect the likeness of God, but the other motivating reason is that you have received mercy and grace. Your offenses have been overlooked, not counted against you. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians, he wrote, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And he also wrote in Colossians, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's a command, it's not a suggestion. You should forgive. consider forgiving Him. It's like, well, no, God and Christ has extended forgiveness to you. So you be patient when you are sinned against. You extend mercy and grace, knowing that you've received infinite more mercy and grace from God. It's your glory to do that, and it glorifies the Lord. So make it a priority to show mercy and grace. You've got to be intentional about that, by the way. You're not just going to say, okay, it's good. I read that I should be merciful as my Heavenly Father is merciful. Great. So just, and then just kind of go throughout the day and, and then just assume you're just going to naturally kind of react that way. Right? I mean, you have to be intentional about applying God's wisdom here and applying these commands to, to forgive as, as you've been forgiven, to be merciful and gracious as God is. So like I said, for us, with, with our kids and everything, every day is a new day, a new challenge, right? And if we go in thinking, you know, Thomas, today, be merciful and gracious. As you're, you know, getting the kids ready in the morning, be merciful and gracious. As you're driving on the freeway, be merciful and gracious. Just move over to the right lane, man. Right? I mean, if you actually meditate on that, and be intentional about it. It, it, it just reminds you and it, it helps you to be slow to anger. Don't, don't just rely on this, this, this you know, fallen heart, yes, yes, changed, redeemed, being renewed by the Spirit of God, and yet there's still indwelling sin. Don't just rely that mercy and grace will come naturally. Be intentional. Plan ahead. It might sound silly, but yeah, actually tell yourself, be merciful and gracious. We need that reminder. Now, we've talked about handling our own anger, and we talked about a lot about that last time, but what is God's wisdom for us when it comes to dealing with other people's anger? When someone else is angry, I'm not angry, but he's angry at me. Do, do I have some wisdom here? Yes, yes, thankfully, yes. Although you're, you're not able to control other people's anger, you're not. I mean, you can't make someone feel a certain way. Um, you know, no Jedi mind tricks here or anything like that. You can't control someone else's anger, but you can certainly influence it. You can influence it. So you do have a role to play, and you've got some wisdom to apply. Chapter 15, verse 18 in Proverbs, you can turn there. The rustling of Bible pages. It's a wonderful sound. Chapter 15, verse 18, this proverb says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And we look at this, and this proves to us that we do actually have some weight. We have some influence. If you're slow to anger, you quiet contention. To quiet contention is to, to bring a, a coral, an angry dispute, to rest so that there's peace and tranquility. That's the effect. And God's wisdom directs us to be a calming influence. A calming influence. And to be a peacemaker. Remind yourself of that. Be a peacemaker. Be a calming influence. 
This requires that you be slow to anger. Guess what? If, if you're not slow to anger, you will not be a calming influence. You will not be a peacemaker. You have to be slow to anger. It requires that you demonstrate patience, understanding, and mercy and grace, these things that we've been talking about. And if you're doing these things, then the other person's anger, guess what? It can't feed off of you. If someone gets angry at you, are you going you gonna to give it some, uh, you know, some fuel? You know, like little chickens come out, you hear some chicken feed. You know, your anger can feed off of me. I'll give it something. Rile it up. Stir it up. But yet, if you're slow to anger, if you're patient and merciful and gracious and understanding, someone else's anger is not going to be able to feed off of you. If you're slow to anger, then quarrels should really die a natural death when you're around. They shouldn't thrive. It should be a calming influence. So we can influence other people's anger. And, and in Proverbs 15.1, so you just look back a little bit, verse 1 of the same chapter, Solomon gives us, us a specific example of how one who is slow to anger quiets contention. I mean, he says one who is slow to anger quiets it. How? We have a specific example here. It says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now let's, let's consider that second part. A harsh word is a hurtful word. It's a, it's a response that is intended to cause some pain in the other person. However, you know, you can think of many ways that you could probably do that. Many kind of responses would be categorized as that. It causes some pain in that other person, and it's intended to. It's a harsh word. It's the kind of response that comes out of us when we've mishandled our anger. Whether it's due to us venting our anger so that, it, uh, that what comes out of our mouths is reckless, or whether it's due to us bottling up our anger so that what comes out of our mouths is rotten because it's been festering in there, rotting away, and then bleh. What comes out is nastiness, harsh word. A harsh word will instigate conflict by stirring up someone's anger, and it will worsen an existing conflict by increasing someone's anger. So no good is ever going to come of it. So it says really two things. Let's say there's no conflict. Let's say there's no tension. There's no anger in the room at all, and you choose to use a harsh word, you choose to cut someone with your words, you're going to stir up someone's anger. You're going to create a conflict. And then if there already is a conflict, using a harsh word is just going to keep making it worse and keep stirring it up. So it's never good. On the other hand, on the other hand, a soft answer. A soft answer. One that is gentle. One, an answer that is considerate. An answer that is loving. That has the power, this proverb says, to turn away someone's wrath with a soft answer. You can, you can diffuse someone's anger. You can diffuse someone else's anger by humbly giving a soft answer. And boy, does that take humility? I mean, if they're angry at you, giving them a soft answer, it takes self-control. But it will diffuse their anger. This is the kind of answer that shows that you, you actually care about the other person and that you're, you're interested in helping and, and working towards a solution to the problem at hand rather than fighting, right? 
So if somebody comes at you and, and maybe, maybe there's a conflict, maybe they're angry at you about something, you say, you know, well, what's your problem? Why are you so angry? Why do you always get so angry? Or if they have a, you know, a critical response of you, if uh, they criticize you in some way, you come back with, well, will you do this. How about, I, I'm, I'm sorry, um, you know, I, I think I, yeah, I, I, clearly I, I did something wrong, forgive me, I didn't mean anything by it, but uh, I, I want to work on this. Whatever the situation might be, I mean, if you just played in your head, if you actually sat down, if you had a, you know, remote control, and they say, why did you forget to take the trash out again, or something like that, right? Some kind of, or, you know, somebody bumps in you on the street, and like, watch where you're going. Pause. It's like, let me think. How can I, what would I say? This, okay, soft answer. Okay, go. Right? So it, it takes some insight and wisdom, but, but at the end of the day, giving a soft answer is going to help the situation. And it's actually a willingness to say, I'm going to try to understand you. Because guess what? I'm not, willing, I'm not going to give a soft answer if I'm only thinking about myself and I only care about myself. Because someone could have a legitimate, you know, criticism of something that you did. Maybe you did offend them. Maybe you actually did something wrong to them. You should be willing to hear that and to actually, you know, build up, you know, create uh, harmony in a relationship, not stir up strife. One commentator says this, it's more typically the case that a soft or tender response will create the conditions that allow for a fruitful conversation. On the other hand, if a person responds with a comment that evokes pain in the other person, then that other person will respond defensively and angrily. So no dialogue can continue. I mean, no real dialogue can continue. It really just puts up a wall. The Apostle Paul instructs us in in Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good, for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A harsh word is corrupting talk. It stirs up strife. But a soft answer is good for building up, and it gives grace to those who hear. By the way, don't forget about the importance of tone of voice. Tone of voice. The way you say something. Because this proverb can apply to that does apply to that too. Uh, Using a harsh tone will not help to diffuse anger. But using a gentle tone will. Now think about it. You could actually not, I mean, the content of what you say doesn't necessarily have to be wrong. But if you say it in a nasty way, it's going to stir up anger. It's going to shut someone down or make them defensive. It's not going to help at all. So that principle applies too. A harsh word, guess what? A harsh tone will stir up anger. A gentle answer needs to have a gentle tone if you're going to be a calming influence. Right? Can I please talk with you right now? Can I please, can we please talk about this? Uh, let's sit down. You know, tone matters. Tone matters. Now we'll look at a proverb in which Solomon warns us of the danger of having corrupting influences. Chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. Here's what he says. Chapter 22, verse 24. Make no friendship 
with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. It matters who your friends are because they'll influence you. And again, if you think about Solomon giving wisdom and instruction, instruction to his young son, trying to set him up well in life, that he might apply godly wisdom. It starts there, right? Even from childhood, who your friends are matters. Your friends will influence you. So that's even a lesson to us, someone as parents. You know, if you have kids, who your kids hang out with, you should be very protective and selective and teach them why. And obviously extends into adulthood, right? Who we hang out with, who we befriend, that matters because those people we're inviting into our life to be an influence on us whether we think that they're going to influence us or not. Sometimes we'll think, ah, no, it's okay, I'm strong, man. I'm very godly that, you know, I know he's rough around the edges, but it ain't going to affect me. It will. It's important to be wise and discerning and selective when it comes to choosing who you're going to associate with and spend time with. Solomon makes it clear here that we should have no friendship with someone who can be described as an angry person, a hothead, a loose cannon. It's totally foolish to hang around somebody like that. After all, we've already seen that in Proverbs, Solomon said that a person given to anger, what does he do? He exalts folly. He acts foolishly. He stirs up strife. He causes much transgression. So to befriend such a person is really just asking for trouble. What good will come of that? What, what, what good influence will he have on you? It will be just the opposite. One commentator says this, Proverbs teaches that we must associate with people of wisdom and avoid those who practice foolish behavior. And in this sense, someone who is characterized by anger, they are a hothead. Otherwise, their bad behavior will rub off on us and so will the negative consequences due to them. And again, we understand that everybody's a sinner. People might have moments where they have an angry outburst, right? Um, but if somebody's actually characterized by these things that, that Solomon is saying are absolutely foolish and ungodly, you should avoid that at all costs. You shouldn't befriend such a person because it'll have a corrupting influence on you. So we would do well to apply the principle of this proverb really to any means by which we would be influenced by the ways of a person given to anger. So what does that mean? Well, it's not just actually, hey, who's going to be my buddy? Who's, who am I going to hang out with uh, on the weekends or whatever? Who am I going to actually befriend? Uh, it could be any form of influence from an angry person. It could be something, for example, just as an example, you could probably think of others, but listening to angry music. You ever heard angry music? You know what I'm talking about, right? Usually in the, the form of like really hard rock or hard core rap, whatever, gangster rap, something like that. And again, I don't want to, there's more out there. But something that's described as angry music, right? You shouldn't be listening to that. Songs that are just full venting rage. Uh, what good is that going to do for you? Is it going to help you in your sanctification? Can you think of some of those songs? They're, they're not going to help you be slow to anger. So, last time we had talked about Sometimes, you know, if we're thinking, hey, I can't vent, I shouldn't vent at another person, 
but hey, it, how about if I'm angry, I just go punch a pillow? And the reason that's foolish is because you might not be doing any harm except to the pillow, which is an inanimate object, so we shouldn't have feelings for it. You punch the pillow, all you're doing is training yourself to blow up. You're just channeling it somewhere else. So again, when, you, when you're just listening to music that is basically telling you, you know, kill everyone, I'm rage, feel the rage, I'm angry, Arr. I don't even want to repeat some, some examples that I could put in here. Uh, but if you're listening to that, it's just, it's just going to influence you. It's teaching you. And you're like, I feel the rage. You know, is that going to help you on the freeway? Right? Break stuff. How about when you're driving? I mean, it would help if you're actually listening to something like, God is good all of the time. All of the time, God is good. Right? So again, take this principle about friendship and apply it to any situation, any influence that you can think of. You shouldn't invite corrupting influences into your life. Think about that. And again, it, you know, it might be a band just has an angry song. Just don't listen to that song. I'm not trying to like limit your freedom in Christ to listen to different kinds of music, but think about what it's saying and the influence it's going to have on your thinking. Now, I want to I do a, a transition here. I want to break from Proverbs because I said last time, I want to look at a couple examples from the one who is our perfect example and should be our greatest influence. Who's that? Jesus. A plus. There, we'll look at two examples in the New Testament where he is said to be angry. The first one is in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there. I should have page turning music. All right, so we have Mark chapter 3. That's on page 838 if you're using one of those blue Bibles. You're like, now he tells me. And here's the passage, verse uh, 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, uh, the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with what? Anger. So again, don't, don't think Jesus didn't get angry. Well, he did. But we want to know why and when. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus' anger here is in response to the Pharisees' silence towards his question. And no, we don't mean when Jesus asks a question, you better answer him. Don't be silent. It's going to make him angry. It's not that. He already knew that the Pharisees were there. They were seeking to accuse him. 
He knew that. According to their wrong understanding of the Sabbath, in spite of the fact that if you actually look right up before this paragraph, he had just explained to them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. They turned it into a burdensome, horrible thing when it was meant to be a wonderful thing, a day of rest. It didn't mean you don't actually help somebody. He had just told them that. And then he has this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? His question showed that he knew what they were going to do once he healed the man with the withered hand. The Pharisees knew the obvious answer to the question. It's clearly unlawful to harm and kill on any day. Yet that is precisely what they schemed to do to Jesus immediately after he healed the man. It says they went out and immediately held counsel with the Rhodians against him how to destroy it. You can't heal a man with a weird hand on the Sabbath. We're going to plot and scheme how to destroy you on the Sabbath. Their silence after Jesus asked this question was a clear display of their, their unbelieving hearts and their sheer hypocrisy, wickedness. Their hearts were hardened to the point that they desired that good would not be done uh, to someone who was unfortunate and that the one who did something good would be destroyed or should be destroyed. This evil is what angered Jesus. But it not only angered him, the text says that it grieved him as well. He was, he was angry at the Pharisees' wicked action and inaction, but grieved at their spiritual condition. And this passage shows us that Jesus was slow to anger and that, guess what, his anger was short-lived, wasn't it? He chose to put it away and to do good. He didn't turn around and say, you know what, i got a problem with you. And, and just, you know, basically, you know, let it distract him from the good he was about to do. He actually, the, the most effective way he decided to deal with the situation was he's going to continue. And again, their silence, it angered him, but he continued and he healed the man. That was actually probably the most effective response he could have towards them. One more example. Anger towards his disciples. And let's see here. We have it up there? Chapter 10, verse 13. I was blanking on the chapter number. Chapter 10, verse 13. This is interesting. Here's the passage, 13 through 16. And they, and these are crowds that had gathered to him, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was, what does it say? Indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, in the, the previous passage we just looked at, Jesus' anger was kindled by his opponents, his enemies. But here it's kindled by his own disciples, his friends. People were bringing children to Jesus, little children, and his disciples rebuked them for doing so. That's all, get out of here. What is that? Jesus was indignant when he saw this. He was angry. Why? Well, maybe it's because the disciples were acting like Pharisees. 
They were preventing those to whom the kingdom of God belongs from coming to him. You see why it angered him? Jesus had just corrected them earlier. Again, the passage right before this one. He had just corrected them for trying to hinder a man from effectively doing a mighty work in his name. John said to him, "Uh, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So they just had that lesson. And then here they are, keeping little children from coming to Jesus, stopping them. They're standing in the way of little, helpless, vulnerable children who are being brought to Jesus so that he can bless them. They're standing in the way of that, acting like Pharisees, guys. Jesus was angry with his disciples because they were acting this way. They were, they were interfering with Jesus' ministry. They were standing in the way of those who were to be recipients of his grace. That's what they were doing. And Mark 10.14 is the only place in the Gospels that Jesus is said to be indignant. And it's the only time that it's explicitly shown that his disciples made him angry. So This is a good example, a unique example. To be indignant in this case means to, to express displeasure rather than to simply brood about it. So he expressed displeasure. It didn't mean he's like, like thinking to himself, oh, this guy's angry at me. I'm gonna, okay, let me teach them something. He expressed that anger. They could tell he was angry. Contrary to how sinful people like us may typically vent our spirits uh, and be destructive in expressing our displeasure, Jesus puts his anger to good and constructive use. Here's what he does. He, He first corrects them. He corrects the wrong. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And then he followed this with an explanation and a teaching point. He uses it as a teaching opportunity. Here's the teaching point. He taught them a a valuable lesson, and it was this. Not only that they were to not stand in the way of God's grace, but he taught them how they were to receive it. Faith like a child. He used it as an opportunity to use them as an illustration of the kind of faith one must have to receive the grace of God. And once again, we see that his anger was short-lived. And after his words to the disciples, he, he embraces the children and he blesses them. So what do we have in Christ's example? Well, anger is real. It's an emotion. It's something that we're not immune to, but it's, it's what we do with that anger. Well, when it's kindled in us, hopefully it's for righteous reasons, right? Or at least, you know, it can be anger towards something that, that, is, that is wicked. Wickedness should anger us, but we should have control of that anger, and it really should be short-lived, and we put it out, and we actually do something constructive, something good, something helpful that honors God in that situation. You see that? That's the example of Christ. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be slow to anger like Him. And when we do feel anger, we must use the occasion to do what is right and good. I was talking with uh, Christianity. He was saying that somebody gave this illustration that your anger is kind of like the uh, check engine light in your car. You know, when it comes on, you don't just start punching the car. Right? You say, hey, something's wrong. Let me figure out what it is so we can solve it. Think of anger as a, as a red flag, and maybe the problem's you. Well, I'm being really self-centered and self-righteous or proud or selfish right now. Maybe the problem's me, and I can deal with it right then and there. Maybe it is some, somebody has wronged me. 
but I can deal with it in a godly way, a soft answer, because I want to I be reconciled. I want harmony. I want, I want a loving relationship. That's the way of love that God's called us to walk in. And I want to close just by being reminded of what Peter had written about following the example of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Here's what he says. Here's Christ our example. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for God's wrath. He's the one who will avenge and repay. We're called to demonstrate the grace and mercy of God, to overlook the offense, to be forgiving, to be loving and controlled and reflect the likeness of Jesus Christ. And think about this. Your example is not just in these specific moments that we see as anger. It's in the fact that we don't really see anger I mean, really at all in the life and ministry of Jesus. And how many times would you have been angry in the situations he was in? With a ragtag group of disciples, so slow to learn, are you serious? I mean, we'd probably lose our minds if we were trying to disciple that bunch. And we would lose our minds with those Pharisees, I tell you. Could you even, like, effectively go and do ministry when you're always dealing with those Pharisees? Right? So that's the example of Christ, even in the places where it's not mentioned. It's the fact that we don't see anger much. It didn't characterize him at all. And one more comment about God being merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He doesn't retain his anger forever. And let me tell you, one way he is slow to anger is what we just read about in Revelation. His wrath is being stored up, but he is not pouring it out. He could destroy the world at any moment, and he would be just in doing so. And yet, He restrains it because he wants to show mercy and grace to those he has chosen to save, to display his kindness, and it glorifies him, but it will also glorify him once he pours out his wrath upon those who continue in rebellion against him. So he he doesn't blow up, he holds that anger, and he is righteous in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for once again showing us your wisdom and and giving us principles to live by and how we are to deal with not only our own anger, but how we are to wisely deal with others who who may be angry at us or what we are to do in situations to be peacemakers as you've called us to be, to be a calming influence, to actually promote peace and harmony in relationships rather than tearing them down. Father, we know our, our anger can get in the way of of the the righteous living that you've called us to, Lord. They can get in the way of us walking in a manner worthy of you and pleasing you, and and they can hinder our, our, our sanctification, Lord, our progress in being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that that your spirit would empower us and enable us and equip us by means of your word to, to apply your wisdom, that we might be more and more like Jesus, that we might be slow slow to anger, self-controlled, and be more than anything else, merciful and gracious and loving and kind. Father, help us 
to put on holy and beloved and compassionate hearts as you've called us to, to put on kindness and humility, meekness and patience, to bear with one another, and if we have a complaint against someone else, that we would forgive. And Lord, that we would do so because we know you have forgiven us, you've extended grace and mercy to us. And above all these things, as you called us to, Lord, help us to put on love. Help us to put on love and to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. That anger would be few and far between its kindling and that it would be short-lived when it is kindled in us. May we honor you and glorify you with our lives. Amen.